0: Hello, I'm Joe Pavia, and thanks for listening to my podcast, Station to Station. On this episode, you'll hear my 1986 interview with children's author and storyteller, Robert Munch. With Robert Munch, December 1st, 1986. How long have you been writing? Since,
1: since 79. 1979. Which was your first book? Um, The first one was
0: Mud Puddle. Mud Puddle, okay, that's right. It was the first of three times I would meet the author. The first, an interview for a serious book, the second time for a controversial book, and the third, well, for a photo shoot. The 1986 interview with Robert Munch was only the second interview I had ever done in my official student radio reporter capacity, the first being with another author from Guelph, Ontario, Gene Little. Both of them had released books in the fall of that year, and they, like me at the time, lived in the city of Guelph. I was in the first semester of my intro year of the broadcast radio and television program at Conestoga College in nearby Kitchener. Both author interviews weren't assignments for class, it was just something to do. There was an opportunity to submit radio interviews for a show that was being produced by a third-year radio student, and I pitched books by my neighbors, I put that in air quotes, from Guelph. Test 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 test. Check one two. Check check. Test one one. Check one one. Coming down in three, two, one. How often do you uh,
1: get a book published? The av- it averages out to about twice a year. Um, Atlantic okay. Press publishes a book. One year they did four books. <laughs> That that was too many. Well, they had trouble publicizing them all. Two of them got lost, basically. Uh, Which were they? That was, they had uh, Angela's Airplane, Mortimer, Fire Station, and The Boy in the Drawer. No, the Murmur, 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 all came out in the same year. Oh, wow. It was too many books.
0: Yeah. Everything I knew about interviewing people in 1986 was based on what I had seen and heard on television and radio. Interviewing was touched on in class. We watched and listened to interviews, talked about research, the questions to ask, and listening to what the newsmaker had to say. It looked and sounded pretty easy, and I figured anyone, including me, could do it. I pitched the Munch interview to the producer of the third-year program. Kim was her name, and she was also from Guelph. And I remember her asking me a question about who the audience was for the interview. Now, I hadn't thought of that. All I was thinking was, didn't everyone want to hear an interview with Robert Munch? My answer may have been something to the effect that he had published a new book, it would appeal to students at the college who were parents, students in the early childhood program that were reading to young kids, and that this book was more serious from his other ones. Whatever I said, she said okay, and I think a portion of the interview was played on her show. Which portion? I can't remember. How do you feel about uh, being compared to other authors? Other storybook authors?
2: Oh, um...
1: I think being compared to other authors is part of the game. Um, I'll tell you what does bother me, though, is when somebody reviews my books and what they compare me to is myself. Out of Munch's ten books, I would rate this ninth, uh-huh. or zero. And it's like, fine, but what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, okay. All of my research about Robert Munch came from my fiance Trudy, who also lived in Guelph and who was an elementary school teacher. She introduced me to the children's author's work. She explained how much her grade one students loved it when she read his books during story time in her class, especially the story of Mortimer, the kid who would rather sing instead of go to sleep. They got
3: upstairs,
2: the she threw
0: him in the bed and said, be That is the sound of Trudy in a 1985 video reading to her grade one students. The video was prepared for a parent-teacher information night. Another Munch book with a song in it was Love You Forever. It was Munch's 11th book to be published, and it was a very serious story compared to the other funny stories that he told young kids during those storytelling concerts. It tells the story of the relationship between a young boy and his mother. Adults who read it cried, but Bob Munch explained to me there were elements of the story that made young kids laugh and it came with the song that, from my recollection, had not been released on audio up to that point that we spoke. I'll love you
1: forever, I'll like you for always, as long
0: as I'm living, my baby you'll be. So I can't remember how, but I got his home telephone number. It may have been listed in the phone book, or it may have been through a connection at the University of Guelph. I honestly can't remember, but we connected, and he agreed to the interview and invited me to his house. We sat at the kitchen table. I remember at least one child was in the TV living room playing, and his wife was preparing a meal. She made an appearance in the interview during a discussion we had about storytelling albums he recorded. You have two uh, story albums up right now? Yes, yes. And you want a Juno for? For Mumble Mumble Munch and 75.
1: No, wait, did you win one last year? 76, I'm sorry. 76? You 86? No, 86, 86. 86. 86. I'm, I'm in the wrong decade, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: would have been 85 that I won the one from Remy Nero much. So I was nervous heading into that interview, and he started out kind of quiet. But I guess I was expecting the same Robert Munch who I had heard telling funny stories to kids on those albums. I was new to this radio interview thing and was nervous because, honestly, I didn't really know what I was doing. And he probably figured that out, how new I was to this game, when I showed up to his house with my portable JVC PC-11 portable stereo... I connected a broadcast-quality mic to it and popped in a 90-minute Maxell cassette and hit play and record. A cassette that I didn't properly erase when I listened to the interview. I can still hear the ghostly audio of hit songs from the 80s and other sounds. And I think I heard animal sounds as well, but I'm not sure if that was one of his kids playing with a toy or if I had an Animal Farm sound effect on the cassette. If he did figure out how inexperienced I was, he didn't let on. Robert Munch was very kind, answered the questions I had for him. He asked for clarification when a question didn't make sense to him. So with my questions in front of me on a sheet of paper and Munch sitting across from me at the kitchen table, the interview got underway. Uh, could you tell, start at the top? Tell me a bit about yourself, where, where you're from. And...
1: Well, I grew up with uh, in a family of nine kids in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Where are I was you? the middle kid. I was about fourth had a lot of little brothers right after me. So I, I guess I when I was a kid, I used to get goodies from my parents because I would help take care of the younger children. And I guess that's that's what set me up emotionally for finding it rewarding to work with kids Be- because my parents were always saying, oh, that's nice, you're very nice to baby Dickie, you know, that's, that's really good. Um... Another thing that happened when I was growing up was my father made up and told his own stories. Oh, so really? he modeled that process. Now see, he would have much rather I grew up to be a lawyer. He didn't know he was screwing up my life when he was making these stories.
0: <laughs> so uh, would you say you were a very mature, young adult? What age are we talking mature
1: about? Mature young adult. Well, I'm talking about when I was you know, between 5 and 10 years old. And I was not mature. I was a wreck school thought I was totally out to lunch. I just daydreamed the whole time. Couldn't spell, couldn't add. I was a disaster. I...
0: Sure. So... How... Uh, what, what changed? Or when did the change take place?
1: Well, at about grade five, the librarian told my parents that I may be strange, but I wasn't dumb because I read books like crazy in the library. And... I think I gradually got the idea that I wasn't dumb either. But I never did spectacularly well in school. I realize now people would say, you know, hey, we've given you this IQ test and you're smart. You, know, you should get a PhD. You should do this, you should do that. But yeah, I was smart, but the way my mind thought wasn't in an organized academic way. Like the way I make stories is not an organized, academic way. I don't write nice term papers. I don't do good research. I'm, I'm smart in a very slipshod, mucky, creative sort of
0: way, which doesn't fit in with being an academic very well. Did, uh, did they, uh, and it didn't uh, fit
1: in very good with being in school either.
0: Uh, I was. Well, I was going to say that a lot of people or a lot of your teachers uh, discourage you and tell you, "Well, uh, you are, you are stupid." Oh,
1: well, I remember this line. Um, I remember you know You'll never be a writer because you can't spell. I still can't spell. My computer does my spelling for me. My computer checks my spelling. <laughs> I still can't spell. But I remember that line. I I came out of school very turned off on writing. And I had to overcome that to be a writer. Uh I came to Canada in 75 and really liked it, became a Canadian citizen, and originally thought that I was going to end up working in daycare or nursery school. I had a degree in early childhood education. But I ended up telling stories, and the stories got published, and (laughs) now I just write books. Who, Who encouraged you to write the stories down? The people who encouraged me the most were um, the, the people uh, I was teaching at the Department of Family Studies at the University of Guelph, and other professors there saw me telling stories, and they started to say, hey, you should publish them, and finally the chairman gave me a summer off to do something, to publish something, and
0: that's what I published. So it was basically the, the U of G who had the most to do with it.
1: Yeah, well, there was also my sister who, way back 10 years before that, when I was telling stories to her kids, was always saying, you should publish these, you should publish these, you should publish these. She was the first one, but I didn't listen to her. <laughs> I should have listened to her.
0: This was back in uh, Pennsylvania?
1: This was, that was in New York City in 19, oh, gee, 1968.
0: Um. Uh, what aims do you set for yourself when you prepare to write a children's story?
1: Well, I have a peculiar way of of producing children's stories. I, I'll story tell them first, and often I, I'll make them up. the first time I make them up, they'll be in front of a live audience. So right. So when I'm initially making up a story, what I'm trying to do is keep an audience happy. I'm sort of being a stand-up comic for five hundred kids. And what I want to do is for the kids to be happy and not tear me apart. (laughs) So, like, that's my goal. I'm not thinking of, you know, plot, structure, meaning, moral. I'm thinking of performing and keeping the kids happy.
0: So, I guess a lot of your stories are should we say, off-the-wall funny, silly stories. Where do you get a lot of the ideas? For example, David's Father, or uh, The Dark, or The uh, Mud public. Well, they
1: they come from various places. David's Father originally started out as a bunch of stories I made up for my daughter when she was first walking to school. And she was afraid of being kidnapped, and she was afraid of walking by herself, and she was afraid of her big teachers, and she was uptight because she was adopted and the other kids weren't. So, all those things just kind of went into this story. Now, but your question? Why did it, why did it end up such an off the wall story? I think my brain is just a little strange. <laughs> if I just say Mortimer had three brothers and sisters, nobody laughs. Mm. But if I say all of Mortimer's 17 brothers and sisters, everybody, the kids laugh. So,
0: when you've gone, we uh, uh, say, in concert, okay, or storytelling. The children, do you make up a story right there? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's
1: amazing. Often, if it's with a big group of kids, I'll say, I'm going to make up a new story now. Who wants to be in it? And some kid will stick up their hand, and then I'll say, um, well, what's your name? What do you like? What don't you like? Just try to get the kid to give me some something to hang my story on, mm-hmm. and... If it's a kid that I know, like one of my own kids or some kid in the neighborhood that I have a relation with and can tell us stories to for a long time, often a bunch of stories will simmer down into one after a long time. Wow, it's that's kind good. of like all different parts from different <clears throat> stories will all clog into one. The most I've ever free floated with was an audience of a thousand kids. <laughs> I made up of these stories. <laughs> if it's an audience that I'm not sure of mm-hmm. and I'm worried about then I'll just stick to stories that I know will work mm-hmm. but once I start feeling confident then I get bored and I want to make up a new story what, what do you think
0: makes you so successful with the kids
1: well I'm a good performer with kids so I it's easy to write kids stories because they're only one page of text anybody can write a kids story question is how do you write a good kids story and like all writers all kids writers who are good have some way of working continuously on a text to make it better and my way is storytelling it takes about between 100 and 200 tellings in front of an audience for stories and that means the language switches from written language to oral language and it has the right cadence and it has the lines that the kids expect because the kids have told me in the course of those tellings what they expect. No, 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 don't do it that way. <laughs> so so I, think, I think I'm a successful author because in the particular little field that I have, I write the kind of stories that kids find easy to relate to because I listen to audiences, because I listen to children. If I just sit down and try to write a story, it's not any good. I need the feedback from the kids.
0: Uh, which is your favorite story from all the stories that you've written, or which uh, should we say, which do you like telling the most, and which do you
1: that, that's like reading like so the most? That, that's a good. A good like, uh, most people don't, when they say, they say, just what's your favorite story? Dif- dif- different stories that are favorite for different reasons. Mm. So, the one that I like telling the best is um, I think I like telling Mortimer the best. Mortimer always catches an audience. There's no problem with Mortimer, and it's fun. You catch me all the time. <laughs> and for for what the books look like, see, a book is an embalmed story, okay? There's the tell story, then there's the book story. For the books, I think my favorite book would be Millicent and the Wind, which isn't a tell story at all. I didn't... I wrote that one without telling it a lot. It's a different sort of story. And I just like the feel of it. I like the artwork. So, so
0: okay, right now you have about... about Over ten storybooks written. Or, um... Now, as far as... Do you have more... A lot of... Double the time... uh, More stories in your head, or...? I have
1: a lot more stories written... I'm sorry. (laughs) I have a lot more stories in my head than I've written. And... And the order that my books have been published in is not the order they were written down in. My publisher has lots of my stories, and they pick and choose. Oh, I see. So, so if you look for evolution in my yeah. books, the, the order they come out in is not the order they're written in. So it's I see. This is confusing.
0: Uh, as far as the, uh, the artist for your books, I know you've worked with Michael Marchenko. Um, yes. I remember some of your books. Do uh, do you work together? Like, do you tell him basically what the story is about, who uh, who the car- principal characters are? And he well, take we the sort of
1: there? work together. I give him <clears throat> the text, and he comes back with a storyboard, a black and white, a comic, black and white pencil comics joke for the book. And at that point, we will go over if I have any changes. And usually I don't, cause he he's the one with. with with the visual brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he thinks of ways to do pictures, and I don't. I see. So, while well, technically I have a lot of input, in fact, my input with Michael Machenko was usually saying, Hey, that's great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I might have asked you this before, but how many stories have you to date, uh, as far as unpublished and published? Well, I've published
1: 15. Okay. And... I've made up about seven or eight hundred stories and forgotten most of them. Like I make, most of my stories I make up one time and I say, oh, that was nice, goodbye, and I forget it. I have an active list of about 40 good stories that I tell. That I'll do enough. Usually when I'm storytelling, I don't do many that are books. Because I, I like new stories and ones that I'm just working on. And so, you,
0: if I story tell, you tend to
1: hear stories that aren't books.
0: Oh, I see. Well, well, what is you said a uh, good stories, What is a good story according to the report they're, you get from the student or from the kids? Yeah, the the reaction
1: of the kids tells me if it's a good story. If the kids if the kids get tired and start to wail and run away, which they do if they're bored. But I know it's a lousy story. <laughs> they run away. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't want to leave.
0: <laughs> what age group are we talking about? We're here?
1: talking about. I tell st- 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 stories for young kids, like say three. My usual audience will be somewhere between three and seven or eight. I see. Three-year-olds are the best audience. You have to be really good. There's has to be a really good story to hold three-year-olds. I mean, they they they'll take being bored for about two seconds and then <laughs> pee their pants or something. <laughs>
0: Do you get a lot of fan mail from little
1: kids? Not directly from little kids. It's fairly rare to get letters. Five-year-olds just don't tend to write oh, authors. Okay. <laughs> um, I get a lot of fan mail from schools, first grades, second grades, and third grades. That's what I was doing this morning before you came. Mm-hmm. Was, I had let it pile up, and I had 63 letters to answer to schools. So, uh, What sort of things do they tell you? The normal letter. If the teachers let them write real letters, if the teacher doesn't put something up on the board and have them copy it, if they write real letters, they write stuff like you know, I like your book mud puddle because I get dirty when I go outside. I have a dog. My little brother is a brat. My father. I <laughs> <laughs> tell you about their houses and their pets and <laughs> all sorts of things. They're nice letters.
0: Oh. Uh, you keep up with uh, with
1: answering them? Yes. The letters are interesting because I can tell a lot about how the teachers approach teaching through the kind of letters they teach, through the kind of letters that they send me. Every once in a while, I'll get 50 letters from the first and second grade, and they're all the same. The teacher has written the letter on the board, and the kids copy the letter. That's the you-sit-and-I-teach approach (laughs) to teaching kids. I don't like that at all. Like, that's not creative, and the kids are learning not to write but to copy. Most of the letters... There's another class where the teacher puts 10 questions up on the board, and any letter looks okay until you've read 40 of them and you realize they're all variants of these 10 questions. The teacher says, choose five. Um. And that's, that's better than copying, but it's still teacher-directed. The nice letters are where the teachers let the kids write real letters with real spelling mistakes the way they want to write them. And little kids will sometimes then write really long letters, Mm -hmm. really long letters, because the, the writing then doesn't get so much in the way of saying what they want to say. And I know in those kind of classrooms, the teachers are letting the kids produce things with their own minds and their own imaginations and not... They don't regard the kid as an empty vessel into which they pour knowledge, you know. (laughs) Ungle your head, I will pour knowledge into your brain and we'll shut it up and there you graduate. So, and I think that the school where the teacher lets the kids write real letters is more likely to be a school where the teacher wouldn't mind if there were some talking in class or wouldn't, when the kids were done with what they she wanted them to do for reading maybe they could go over to the sand table there would be a sand table I think it all comes together as a package the people that see children as being able to produce and be creative have a whole different approach to teaching than those that see it as copying I write you
0: copy awesome. uh, what's it like being a unknown writer children's writer
1: that depends on what environment I'm in. In Guelph, uh, people take me for granted. Nobody, nobody bothers me. The kids don't jump on me. <laughs> if I'm at a conference someplace, sometimes I wouldn't want to come out of my hotel room because people would just stop me in the halls and want me to sign books. And if I stop, then a line forms, and, and there I am. There was one conference I was at in London, Ontario, where in the course of one 24-hour period, I ended up signing books for five hours. And like that gets
0: <laughs> a little... <laughs> I, I can imagine. So um, as far as your, well, your degree in early childhood education, has this helped you to write uh, or to tell stories? Like, do you, Does no. it give you an understanding of what children want? or what children should have?
1: No, I don't think the degree helps my writing as such. It helps me understand kids. But, in fact, I mean, not everybody who gets the degree (laughs) writes. Um, And I was telling stories before I got the degree. Uh So, I think the degree gives me ideas for stories, but the, the techniques and the the way I have it working with text I don't know where that came from what do you like the most about your career Um, what I like the most is that I have a lot more it's not a 9 to 5 job I have a lot more freedom about what I do when what I don't like most is it doesn't stay the nice thing about a 9 to 5 job is it stays between 9 to 5 you you can can scrunch it in there and it'll stay there and this job doesn't stay in there. It sticks out at weird time periods, and if I travel, then it takes all my time. All right. So it's a, at the same time it allows more freedom, but then it's so unstructured. It's sometimes more constraining because I can't I can't say I'm going to go. I'm going to go play hockey every second Thursday mm-hmm. because I don't know where I'm going to be every second Thursday.
0: Do you, really, do you have a, lot, um, a tight schedule then as far as uh, talks? What, what talks... Um, well, you were at a seminar, I think, was a couple of weeks ago when I, was, when I spoke to you last. What sort of seminar is that all it's about? People, conferences call me up, yeah.
1: like the <clears throat> Alberta... Reading Society or the Nova Scotia Parent Teacher Association are having conferences and they'll call me up and want me to go places and sometimes I do and people schools and children's concert series will will want me just to perform you know we have 500 kids in Owen Sound and wouldn't you please come and tell stories or the Winnipeg Children's Festival
0: or the Vancouver Children's Festival Uh Are you booked right at this, as we speak? <laughs> Should we say, are you booked for I have as much vacation? stuff as
1: I want to do until September 1987. Mm-hmm. But that, that's leaving a lot of time free for me, because i found in the past, when people first started to ask, I had trouble saying no. And I would just book myself too much, and i too much, mm-hmm. not seeing my family, and not writing either. I would get burned. So... How do you like traveling across Canada? Well, aside from the fact that that means I'm away from my family and I have little kids. That's the bad part of traveling. The good part of traveling is that I really like it. (laughs) Um, I generally, when I travel I try to set it up so that I'll stay with families instead of staying in Holiday Inns, which are the same no matter where I stay. And I often try to go to different places. The last time I was out in BC, I did something in Richmond, BC, which is Vancouver, but then I did something in Prince Rupert, 500 miles up the coast, which is not Vancouver, where you saw my first bald eagle there, and that's downtown, <laughs> bald eagle like, look at that, it's a
0: different place. It's not something that you'd see around here. <laughs> not
1: something you'd see around here, no.
0: They don't have squirrels there. <laughs> they say the same thing when they come here.
1: And sometimes I've arranged, like... A school will write me from a really strange, isolated place, and I'll think, gee, wouldn't it be neat if I could visit that place? Or a kid will write me. A kid wrote me once from a place called Eskimo Point in the Northwest Territories, and I started trading letters with, with her, and two years later I managed to wrangle a Canada Council tour that got me to Eskimo Point, which is a hard place to get to. Like there are no roads to Eskimo Point. <laughs> where uh, it's on the west shore of Hudson's Bay. It's a little seal-hunting Inuit community there. What's the population? It's about a thousand one hundred people, with the highest birth rate in Canada. With the highest birth rate, a thousand people have yeah. sixty kids in the first grade. Really? Yeah. Families. the The family I stayed with had thirteen kids.
0: Uh, where have you received the best, uh, best reaction? And all this storytelling? Oh, gee. I I
1: generally receive great reactions. I'm a good performer. People really like me wherever I go. Um, Some especially notable things have been flying into the Medicine Hat Airport and having this... Two grades from the school there with big, you know, we like Bob Munch signs, <laughs> and everybody else in the airport saying, what in God's name is going on, and who, who is Bob Munch? <laughs> that, that, that was a nice one. The same thing happened at Eskimo Point when I came into that airport. They had 20 kids from the town who went into town with me on the back of a truck, and then proceeded to give me a tour of the whole town. Like the hospital, the, 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 the mountains, Like they were just, you know, 20 kids and me, they'd crash in. Here's Bob Munch. They were going to take it to the doctors. I'm like, oh my God, this is an operating room. Get the hell out of here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite
1: intrusive.
0: But that was that was a neat one. Let's see. What, what was one of your uh, worst experiences? Oh,
1: worst uh, performing experiences. Performing
0: in front of a, a, a huge audience. Of, um, Georgetown, Ontario.
1: I was telling stories to 300 kids second time around second concert of the day and the electricity goes off in the auditorium and the emergency lights don't come on so i'm left with 300 kids in the dark and my mic stopped working and i had the flu and a terrible sore throat oh, so i had to do the thing with my throat killing me and i figured look with 300 kids in the dark, the best thing to do is keep telling stories, and hope I can keep them happy. Because if they figure out that here it is, there's 300 of them, and it's the dark, mm. they are going to be <laughs> bad things might happen. So I did a half an hour show in the absolute dark. It was kind of interesting because often in, in my regular show I move around a lot and use the facial expressions, and, but here they couldn't see me, so I stood with my arms crossed and told the stories without moving had to do it all with my voice. Oh, geez. But by, the, by the end of that, my voice was just a little bit wrecked. Another bad experience I had was the Oktoberfest in Winnipeg. A guy had asked me to come and tell stories. And I thought it was going to be like in an auditorium, but it turns out Oktoberfest is a hall for 5,000 people in the Winnipeg Convention Center with all these German food stands and beer and stuff, where people sit at tables and talk. And... I think it's okay if you're a rock show. You know, you're blasting them with the decibels. But it's a bad place to tell stories. I didn't like that at all. Were they all adults? No, there were kids there, and the kids were... A lot of kids would come up and sit right around the stage. But there was a lot of other stuff going on. And it was hard to keep the keep control of the audience there. And they didn't have they didn't have good crowd control at all. Oh. So some of the kids would get up on the stage, and
0: it was <laughs> whoa, bad show. I getting to uh, Millicent and the Wind. A lot of my well, like we were saying like I was saying before, a lot of your books are are silly, uh, but Millicent and the Wind and Love You Forever, which are serious. Are not silly. Uh, yes, well. Cool. Why the, why the change? Well,
1: Millicent is one of my oldest stories. I, I've had that since the early 70s. Um, it's a bedtime story for daycare, a naptime story. A nice, quiet, calming naptime story. And that accounts for the difference in tone. It's not a rev-em-up mm-hmm. story time story. And Love You Forever is... Um, it just, it just came out of some personal experiences and it was different. I, I, I carried more baggage into that story than I normally do with my stories. Normally my stories, they respond to the audience. And in that one, I had some baggage about things that had happened to me. And I carried it into the story, so it had a very different tone. Mm-hmm. But still, when I tell it for kids, for kids it's a funny story. For adults it isn't. But kids think it is a funny story because they think it's, first of all, it makes sense for kids. Little kids, have you ever seen a little kid come up to you and it's late at night and they say, does your mommy know you're out? I've had that happen, like, because little kids can't imagine that someone doesn't have an, someone actively mommying them someplace. I see, okay. So for a little kid, the idea that the mother would drive across town and climb out to her son's window and walk him to sleep when he's 45, they say, oh, that makes sense, and they think it's funny, but it makes sense. And the son rocking the mother at the end, they find a really hilarious role reversal. See, because little, little kids are immortal. They don't think about loss or death or, or losing things. For them, the passage of time only gains things. So for them, it's a funny story. But for adults... But it wasn't
2: when you actually had the mother dying.
1: No, that's why I dropped out, having the mother die. Oh, it, it was supposed to be longer? I did a version with the mother actually dies. I say that. And the kids didn't like that. Oh, really? Because that wasn't the way they wanted this story to be.
0: Um, I read the book, actually. I brought it with me. I, I, I was really touched by it. How does the song go?
1: The song goes, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. But my publisher says it's a bad idea to put musical notes into books because people get frightened. They say, Oh my God, music! Oh no, no. And we've had, like in Mortimer and in Love You Forever, we've had good luck saying this is a song, folks. I'm not putting any music at all, and everybody makes up their own song. Oh, I see. You have two uh, story albums up right now. Yes, yes. And you won a Juno for? For Mermal Mermel Munch in 75. No, did you win one last year? 76, I'm sorry. 76? You (laughs) mean 86? 86, 86. I'm I'm in the wrong decade, sorry. (laughs) It would have been 85 that I won the one for Mermal Mermal Munch. And are you planning on coming out with another one? Uh, funny you should mention. I recorded one two weeks ago, and it's getting mixed, and whatever they do to turn the tape into a record.
0: <laughs> Will it be uh,
1: with uh, children? Is I, it live? Yeah, or? it's live. I recorded it in a place called the Waxworks in St. Jacob's, Ontario. Oh, yes. I, um, some friends of mine Well, to record The nice up. thing about the Waxworks is it's about two minutes from the school, so we could just bring kids, uh-huh. classes of kids over from the school right into the studio and use them. For the, for the recording.
0: How many stories on this album? It has.
1: Mm. I forget, ten or twelve. All as many new. as we could cram on. <laughs> All new stories? All new stories, yeah. Uh, what? Uh, so most of them aren't books yet because I've run out of stories that are in books, and I'm doing stories that aren't books now.
0: Oh really? So will they? Uh, when do you think the album will be released?
1: That again is an excellent question. It depends on how together my record company is, but I think it will be spring '87 that they'll release it.
0: And do you think that uh, some of the books
1: that are wall stories on the album will be coming out at the same time? Well, one of them, one of them is already. It's going to be my Christmas book for '87. So I mean, yes, the st- the stories that I tell on the record are my best stories, and those are the ones that my publisher. Browses through to get books. So yes, eventually they'll be, be, some of them will be coming out as books. Oh, so, uh, but some may. Well, on my other, on my like on my other albums, there's one, Ro- Rosalind's Watch and Jennifer's Tooth, which have never been made into
0: books. Your publisher didn't feel it was.
1: Well, something like Jennifer's Tooth has been scheduled four times now, and I always made up a story that was better, and the publisher would say, Oh no.
0: We'll do, we'll do this story instead. The December 1986 interview with children's author and storyteller Robert Munch. It was recorded while we sat at the kitchen table at his home in Guelph. This interview was re-edited from the original raw audio interview that I recorded that year. And that was the first time I interviewed Robert Munch. The second time I interviewed Robert Munch was about a book called Giant, or Waiting for the Thursday Boat. It caused some controversy.
3: My daughter, who was about 10 at the time, came to me and said, how come whenever they have a picture of God, he's a man? I explained, explained you know, that that was just the way people did it. And after a while, she finally said, look, you make books, you could do it any way you want. Why don't you make a book where God isn't a man? And I thought about that for two years and said, you know, what the heck, I'll do it.
0: The book, published in 1989, was restricted by some school boards in Ontario for kids in kindergarten to grade three. There were concerns about the religious themes, that God was a little girl, and threats of violence were made against God in the book. This is a report I put together featuring Robert Munch and the publisher of Anic Press, Rick Wilkes. The story centers around McKeon, the largest giant in all of Ireland, who is mad for the first time in his life. McKeon plans to meet God, who is coming on the Thursday boat, where he will pound him into applesauce. Rick Wilkes, the co-director of Anic Press in Toronto, says the controversy of the book has overshadowed the real meaning of the story, which is that of a character coming to maturity. McKeon the giant is the child who throws a temper tantrum. He reforms later in the story and finds throwing a temper tantrum is not an effective way of getting what you want. Rick Wilkes comments on the statement McKeon makes about pounding God into applesauce.
2: Well, if you take a comment like that out of context, it does sound violent, and uh, it does sound like gratuitous violence. On the other hand, uh, I suppose what I'm arguing for is to see these things within context, which is again a a childlike character kind of lashing out irrationally, um, as one would witness kids doing in a playground just about any day. But I think uh, as that child, or as McKeon, matures through the book, you see that uh, that kind of behavior is quickly dropped. And, and in fact, he, resu- he, he establishes much more peaceful ways to solve his problems.
0: Author Robert Munch says certain adults are overreacting to a fairy tale for little kids.
3: Often people are saying the reason they're banning it is because the book has violence in it. But the violence that they're particularly concerned about is because the giant threatens to beat up God. Now, if the giant had threatened to beat up a dragon, I don't think that same amount of violence would have worried them. It's that in the book, anyway, the giant at least thinks he can attack God. People see that as blasphemous.
0: The book restriction that started in Middlesex County has now moved into Welland County. The controversy has also moved into Renfrew County near Ottawa. Middlesex County Board has not communicated with Anic Press about restricting the book, which upsets Rick Wilkes.
2: Yes, it does. Um, I suppose I have to have faith that all sides of this argument are ultimately going to emerge and get aired out. But um, I would like to communicate with them because I'm I'm upset about the kind of interpretation that they've arrived at. You know, I I, I think that um, restricting or censoring a book is a very, very serious issue. Ironically enough, I I should add that we don't recommend this book for younger kids. Uh, Some may enjoy it, and that's fine, and some may want to talk to their parents or teachers about it, and that's fine. But the book was published for older picture book readers. Uh, We never suggested that young kids get it, and and that was their issue as well. Uh, Where I obviously draw a very strong line, however, is I don't believe that you restrict the book so that young kids can't get it. You just... Don't recommend it for young kids.
0: Munch says he has read the story to children, and they don't have a problem with the story. He says the children aren't concerned about the violence in the book. What they're concerned with is the fact that God appears in the book in the form of a little girl.
3: Hey, they'll say, hey, was the little girl God there? And I'll say, yes. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, but uh, God's not a little girl. And I'll say, well, in this book, God can be a little girl. In other books, God could be something different. Nobody really knows what God is. Which is which is one of the things I hope would happen when kids read the book—that it would open up their ideas. Most kids assume that God is some guy with a white beard, mm-hmm. which is, it makes as much sense to say that God is a little girl. And neither one is right, and both are valid.
0: Before the book was published, Wilkes says he and author Robert Munch had considered the possibility that the book would cause some problems.
2: Uh, we certainly considered the possibility that it might. I mean, if you mention God in the story, um, we know in some way we're opening ourselves up to controversy. That is not at all why we did it. I mean, we, we, we did not seek out this controversy. We don't uh, we don't look for it, and I really regret the form that it's taken. I, I think it's a real misnomer. Um, we considered it, and we paid a lot of attention to to the text uh, so that it would be as clear and reasonable a story as is possible. And uh, our hope with the story was to to capture young readers' interests and to encourage discussion, you know, to to encourage people to reflect on on what their sense of, of God or a higher being might be. Um, in a very personal way. We don't want to suggest anything. We don't want to be didactic or pedantic about it. Um, We're letting readers draw their own conclusions.
0: The storyteller says he has received letters from priests and ministers telling him the story is an excellent Christian allegory. Robert Munch explains he developed the idea for the story through conversations with his daughter.
3: My daughter, who was about 10 at the time, came to me and said, how come whenever they have a picture of God, he's a man? I explained you know, that, that that was just the way people did it, that it didn't make sense to say that God was male or female. And she said, yeah, but how come when they make pictures? And after a while, she finally said, look, you make books. You could do it any way you want. Why don't you make a book where God isn't a man? And I thought about that for two years and said, you know, what the heck, I'll do it.
0: Rick Wilkes of Press and storyteller Robert Munch on the book Giant or Waiting for the Thursday Boat. The interview aired originally on DC 103.5 FM in Orangeville, Ontario in 1990. The third time I connected with Robert Munch was in 1991 when I worked at CJEZ Radio in Toronto. He was at the station to promote a TV special that aired that year. My news director interviewed him and asked him the other question I wish I had asked in 1986. He mentions during the interview that he made up stories on the spot to an audience of children. It was right in front of me, and I missed the opportunity to ask him to make up a story about Joe, who works in radio. Instead, my news director at CJEZ got to ask him that. And the story Robert Munch made up on the spot was about a child who shows up at a radio station and caused some sort of chaos involving a piece of recording equipment that chaos was heard on the air by people listening to the program. However, it was during that interview that the photo shoot took place. I started bringing my camera to certain assignments and that day in 1991 I brought it to CJZ. You can check out the photo of how young Robert Munch and I look in 1991. It's posted on my website, JoePavia.com Thanks for listening to my podcast, Station to Station. The podcast revisits old radio interviews and new stories and assignments I covered. You can find blogs, photos, and other stories on my website, joepavia.com. There's a lot of links to Robert Munch as well from this segment. I have posted my podcast to SoundCloud and iTunes. It also appears on other platforms as well. The interview is also posted to my website, joepavia.com, and on my website you can also sign up to have uh, news stories and audio mailed to your inbox as they become available. Thanks, and see you on the next podcast.